Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the recent market rally, what lies behind the recent boom in mergers and acquisitions and new stock market listings, and how UK fund managers approach responsible investing, with Miles Sherry, investment consultant, and Stephen Peters, senior fund manager. Hello and welcome to another episode of Word on the Street. There's been plenty going on over the past few weeks across markets in general, but today we actually thought we'd dedicate some time to our home markets and focus on the UK specifically. And whilst our exposure in client portfolios is relatively low, given the UK is a relatively small fish in relation to the global economy, we have seen a buzzing M&A market due to a hive of recent activity So I'm joined by Stephen Peters, our in-house experts covering UK equity funds within our fund manager selection team to discuss this alongside other topics, including dividends, IPOs and also ESG. But before we explore those topics, it's probably just worth taking a step back and actually reviewing UK performance more generally, because if we're being honest, it's been a pretty unloved market ever since the Brexit referendum, which up until the deal in December last year had essentially left a pretty big question mark hanging over us as to what would or would not happen. And as we know, markets definitely tend to like certainty. But since the back end of last year, we've actually seen a bit of a rally. So as of recording, the main FTSE 100 index has risen by a little under 15% since that first so-called vaccine Monday back in November. And the more domestic and mid-cap focused FTSE 250 index is actually up closer to 20% over the same time period. In terms of the sectors, you know, the biggest gainers over that admittedly quite short period have been names in um, sectors like airlines, energy and financials. And we've seen some share prices rally well over 50% in those uh, markets, while some of the so-called stay-at-home winners have actually come under a bit of short-term pressure. So, I guess, Stephen, the, the kind of natural question here is, is this really a continuation of the growth versus value story that's been playing out across developed markets and global markets more generally? Or is there anything more feeding into this, such as the rising uh, yield curve we've seen in the bond market or also that kind of Brexit deal that I referenced earlier? Yeah. Hi, Miles. Hi, everybody. It's all of the above. As you quite rightly say, the UK has been friendless since 2016. External surveys had it down as probably the least favoured asset class of them all in the last couple of years. But as you said, that that changed in early November last year and as well as the Brexit deal. But it was really the vaccine news that set things going. But you're absolutely right. It's vaccine news. It's EU, UK trade deal. And it's and it's the rise in uh, government bond yields and the the sell off of the you know, the very high profile tech names in the US that's really feeding through to this. Okay, so that's some useful context, but let's dive into it and take a look first at mergers and acquisitions, because I have to say some of these numbers certainly will surprise people and they definitely surprised me when I was taking a look at this earlier this morning, because in the first six weeks of this year, we've reportedly seen the highest level of deal announcements since 2000. And the value of deals relating to you know, UK investments or acquisitions totaled just over £25 billion. And of course, to put that into context, that's over three times the value seen during the same period last year. So are there any 
particular factors driving this or is it kind of a case that foreign investors are essentially just looking to snap up maybe what they deem to be a bit of a bargain because the UK is viewed as you know being relatively cheap and that Brexit deals remove some of that uncertainty. Again, I, I'd agree with you. It's the the better certainty. The uh, you know the markets like as you said like certainty. They like some kind of visibility looking forward. So they're getting that from the uh, trade deal, the EU UK trade deal. Many regard sterling as cheap versus other currencies and we've seen it uh, appreciate go up in value versus the euro versus the dollar in the last few months and then you also have from the the demand side you have private equity businesses mainly in the us sitting on what's known as a lot of dry powder which is just industry jargon for they have a lot of money to spend and they're looking around the world, they see US tech businesses, which may offer lots of growth, but may also be very fully valued. Whereas they can look to the UK, they can find high quality listed UK businesses are often operating in strong niches. They may be world leaders in what they do, trading on what they may regard as bargain basement valuations. So they can come to the UK market, good governance, good you know regulatory regime, and uh, take advantage of that. And that's I think one of the big reasons behind uh, the the M and A activity this year. I'd also highlight that I think there's a bit of a uh, a factor involved where the active management industry are unwilling, stroke unable to be able to take a really long term view on the UK's structural winners. We may have world leading businesses here, but history suggests that investors in UK equities, the institutional investors in UK equities are not necessarily willing to support them through thick and thin, but um, often will sell out at the first sign of a of a deal to take the money off them. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And are you seeing any particular parts of the UK market being targeted? Are there any kind of recurring themes? If we if we again take a bit of a step back, I, I you know, I expect none of this is going to be happening in relation to the FTSE 100, given the fact it's full of very large and mature businesses. And I think I'm right in saying that the kind of real hunting ground in this area is probably more the kind of small and, and mid-cap uh, and more domestically focused UK businesses. Yeah, you're right. Um, it would normally be UK mid and small caps. I mean, the UK, the largest UK companies are not immune from a takeover speculation. A few years ago, obviously, or a few years ago, Unilever was bid for briefly by a, a US listed business. So it, it does happen. But as you say, it's, it's mainly the mid and small size companies. Are there any trends? I don't think so. Generally, these are businesses that have struggled and are working their way out of their difficulties. There's a very well-known UK or a UK temporary power company, uh, Agreco. That's one particular name. Used to be, I think, a FTSE 100 company, now in the 250. I mean, that's well known for providing temporary power to big events, to the Olympics around the world, to Glastonbury festivals. I think, for instance, and that's one that's been taken out by a consortium of US private equity businesses. Elsewhere, other trends, I mean, house builders, we've seen a few house building type companies bid for. There's obviously a big demand for housing in the UK. So people are trying to take advantage of that. But other than that, no, I wouldn't say there's a particular trend. Yeah, just touching on Glastonbury there, I'm, a, I'm one of the lucky few that uh, managed to actually get a ticket in the last round. So let's hope that actually goes ahead next year but let's um let's turn and have a look at dividends so this is a particular area of focus for for those targeting an, an income and we know that the dividend yield from 
UK companies has, of course, historically been quite high relative to other developed markets. But then going back to last year, we saw a pretty massive cut across the board, really, didn't we? We did. Overall, it was about 40% fall, according to Link, which is one of, they do, a Link is a company that does a, a UK dividend monitor and a kind of a survey of UK dividends. They, they estimated it was about a 40% fall last year in dividends paid by UK listed companies. Clearly, there were some big contributing factors to that. The financial services sector and notably the banks didn't pay any dividends last year. That was a big influence. Um, there have been other dividend cuts and some businesses are looking to uh, rebalance, shall we say, the their uses of cash. So instead of necessarily paying it all out to, or some most of it out to shareholders in the form of dividends, perhaps they might want to do share buybacks or even invest it and try and uh, improve the UK's productivity puzzle, which is many listeners will know it shows that the UK's productivity is is not good when compared to other developed markets around the world. But yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a very difficult year. We are seeing dividends come back. We are seeing some of the banks have started to announce they're paying dividends. Lots of companies which temporarily paused their dividends are coming back to the dividend list. So that's all good. One big question for managers is how long will it take for the UK to pay the same amount of dividends as they did in 2019. And again, the market is estimated to be 2025 at the earliest. Hopefully active managers can do similar or better to that. Yeah, certainly something they will inevitably be keeping a close eye on. But in initial public offerings, otherwise, of course, known as IPOs, are well worth exploring too, I think. And as with M&A, we've seen a good number of these starting to come through this year, haven't we? And I'm sure many listeners will have had an email from Deliveroo uh, this week outlining their interest in going public too. But maybe again, just taking a little bit of a step back, I'm sure it's relatively obvious to most people. But do you just want to briefly remind everyone what exactly an IPO is and why we're seeing a particularly busy UK market at the moment? Sure. So an IPO, initial public offering, as you said, it's simply the listing on a stock market of a company that was previously privately owned by individuals or private equity or another company, and instead making it publicly available, making its shares publicly available and traded on a, on a stock market. Normally, the majority of new listings are medium and small sized companies. Often it's founding shareholders, founders, entrepreneurs, They've, they maybe need more capital, they need more cash to invest in their business. So they sell some shares to other investors in order to receive that cash, either to maybe retire with it or even invest it in their business. Equally, you have private equity companies. Private equity might buy a company. They spend some time owning it, trying to improve it, trying to grow it. And then they need to recycle their money. They want to go and invest elsewhere in another opportunity. So they decide to sell their, their shares, sell their stake in the business to other investors. And that's what we've seen this year. We've seen a number of quite interesting companies, which I'm quite happy to mention a few of them in the UK, which is good because we didn't have very many of them last year during the coronavirus period of concern and doubt and fear. And just thinking about this in relation to the, the UK equity fund managers that you talk to on a on a regular basis, how do they kind of, you know, view IPOs? And 
I think I'm right in saying as well that some of the managers that you talk to look to actually gain exposure to some of these, you know, higher growth businesses whilst they're still, you know, privately owned, don't they? They do. It's not a, a big part of many managers' portfolios. The obvious concern is that if you buy a privately owned company, there is no liquidity in it, which means you if you don't if you want to sell your shares, it can be quite difficult. And that has some problems and potential problems as some high profile names in the industry have shown in recent years. But you're absolutely right. Companies will buy these smaller names at launch, at at the initial stage. Why do they do that? Because they can hopefully get a a, a stake, a meaningful size stake. Often it's harder to get them by the size of stake they want when the, the shares are being traded. They can maybe influence the price or the terms at which the shares are being issued. They may see the company before it comes to market and it, and it just really really helps them because uh, they they may get insights that you wouldn't normally get just by seeing a company on the its usual roadshow round once it's listed yeah and i think it's been a common theme hasn't it in in recent years that those uk businesses are starting to list later and later so as you say fund managers like to get a bit of skin in the game early on but do so in a kind of risk controlled way keeping an eye on that Liquidity. But um, let's just turn to the final topic that I'd like to quickly pick your brains on, and that's ESG investing. So it's a topic which really does continue to grab headlines and also interest, I've noticed, uh, particularly from investors as well. And you're, of course, in regular contact with the, the fund managers. So how are they kind of navigating this area, particularly given if you look at the sectorial makeup of the UK, it's probably got more exposure to some of those sectors that are less regarded to be ESG friendly? And also, how do they influence those those companies that they're investing in to maybe adopt or improve their, their ESG practices? It's a, a massive topic and one that we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about. But the, the uh, things that I would say is that there's no doubt that over the last 10 years, and particularly in the last five years, fund groups, fund managers are spending far more time thinking about ESG criteria in relation to their investments than they ever have done in the past. Historically, most have focused on the G, the governance. What does that mean? That means dealing with management, making sure management have appropriate levels of remuneration, not too much, not too little, making sure that the board of directors are suitably qualified. They're not, you know, they haven't been there too long and they're not just uh, ticking boxes and yes men for the executive management. So governance has always been a big part of most fund managers investing agendas. The E and the S, the environmental and the social, is definitely the two that have increased in focus in the last few years. What I, And lots of managers are doing, are spending lots of money on buying systems, buying databases to help them with their research. Uh, they're signing up to codes of conduct, to things like the UN principles of responsible investment. Uh, these are all good things. Let's be really clear. These are all good things and they're good for society. Um, and they're good for the underlying investors in their portfolios. However, my observation in the with the funds and the asset class that I cover is that despite all of this good behaviour, it's really hard to find examples in mainstream fund managers, i.e. those that, are, that try and invest money across the cycle and don't have a specific ESG objective, where you can say to them, Okay, that's great. How has it actually changed your investment decision making? How has it stopped you from buying a company that you would buy before? Or how has it made you buy less or even more of a company 
because it may have you know less good or even really good ESG credentials? And how does it change how you construct your portfolio? How do you put together the the number of stocks that you own? That's when it's really difficult. It's really difficult to find fund groups where it's actually ESG considerations are actually making a meaningful contribution to how the portfolio is run. They're doing good things. They're voting. They're voting their shares, which they should do to be good, responsible shareholders. They're voting their shares. They're engaging with management. But it's hard to say what difference they are making because it's really hard to assess whether investment behavior is changing. Can, I, can you go along and can you say to a company, did you change your behavior because of XYZ manager told you to? That's, that's a difficult thing to do. One or two have realized or are realizing that ESG risks and opportunities are financial risks and opportunities, but others are not quite there yet. And it will take time, but it's, they're not there yet. And we were we were discussing this the the other day, weren't we? In terms of quite an insightful analogy that you picked up on, I think from one of the from one of the managers you spoke about. It might be worth just replaying that one as well because I thought it was quite a nice way of, of thinking about it. Sure. Well, it was. I, I can't remember who uh, takes credit for this, but the the analogy was one of weight loss and one of the UK government's objective to try and get the general population to lose a bit of weight. You can tell. The government can tell people that they need to lose weight in order to live a longer, healthier life. And you can help them by offering them couch to 5K apps and, you know, food labelling and the like. But ultimately, it's up to the individual to make the decision. It's up to the individual to, to eat less meat, to, you know, go out for a run, uh, to, you know, to try and do 10,000 steps a day. It's up to the individual to do that. Just like it's up to the individual companies to do that. It's up to the individual companies that the fund groups invest in to make a change. The problem the fund groups have is if they sell their shares because they don't like what a company is doing, then they lose influence. So would you rather own, would the fund groups are asking the question of themselves, would we rather own a company that maybe is not so good on ESG grounds, but influence them over the long term, than just sell them and say, we're not going to buy them because they're they're not meeting our ESG criteria. That's the dilemma that many of them have and continue to wrestle with today. Yeah, certainly a hard one to, to weigh up in what is still, let's be honest, a relatively new area in terms of investments more generally. But look, it's something you and I could probably debate for, for hours, but we've we've hit time there. So let's wrap it up there. I'm sure it's a topic that we will revisit on this podcast later on in this year but thanks for your insights there Stephen very interesting and useful indeed thanks too for listening and if you are keen to learn more about the team's views on markets more generally over the past month or so then I'd recommend listening to monthly market insights which came out within this podcast series on Tuesday the 9th of March and if you of course are interested in learning about investments more generally, then please do take a look at the website barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.